0: All right, and we are learning how to study our Bible together, and this week's lesson is all about authorial intent. But just to recap very quickly where we've come in, in the previous three lessons, first lesson, um, we looked at why we stud, study our Bible, uh, because uh, the Bible is the inspired Word of God's man, and, and we need to study it to seek and get closer to Him. So that must be our task, is to get closer to the author of the Bible through studying his word. Uh, Also, we looked at how we prepare ourselves. We have to humble ourselves, ready to be fertile ground for the seeds of truth to grow in our heart. We must pray for wisdom and understanding so we can live out the word and grow in spiritual maturity. Um, and we must continually read and meditate the Bible so we become increasingly familiar with it. So uh, those two lessons were sort of theological, philosophical discussions, but then we moved on to the practical. And last time, when we dug a little bit more into the how of how we should study the Bible, uh, we looked at context, um, we, we looked at the subjects of literary contra- context, first of all, reminding ourselves that when we read a word, we read it in light of its sentence, and then that in light of its paragraph, that paragraph in light of its chapter, in light of the whole book, in light of the whole testament, and ultimately in light of the Bible as a whole. And we'll look more at that whole Bible context today as well in today's lesson. We looked at literary genres Um, We learned about the historical narrative, which is God's plan through real history. We looked at ancient Hebrew poetry, which is God's word to the human heart. We looked at wisdom literature, which is God's wisdom contemplated. We looked at the prophetic and apocalyptic genres, which is God's plan foretold. And then we looked at the Gospels and how they are ancient biographies, Uh, These bios, as they're called, their subject, of course, is Jesus, the Messiah. And then we finally looked uh, briefly at how the New Testament church was established through epistolary letters, and they were addressing real issues with real churches. Uh, Finally, we topped off that lesson with a quick look at historical context, um, how these events take place in real history, and how... The Lord was orchestrating events of history uh, so that the events of the scripture could take place according to his will and um, were facilitating his plan for salvation. And then uh, finally we looked at cultural context which refers to the customary beliefs and the social forms that make up life and experience during biblical times. Uh, If you remember our example on... uh, the two passages that talked about how you shouldn't boil a kid in its mother's milk, how cultural context was a massive factor in interpreting that passage correctly. Uh, If you look in your outline, there's a book here I recommend, just in your continued study for historical and cultural context. Look, um, you'll see uh, an illustrated reference to Manners and Customs of the Bible by James Freeman. That's a good book if you're wanting to do that type of study. Today, we're going to move on to authorial intent. But before we do, is there anything uh, particularly that um, jumped out to any of you guys that have been in our previous lessons on context or why we study the Bible or how to prepare, anything you'd like to share with the class Anything you think was particularly useful? Something you'd never thought of before? Yes, sir? Uh, I the trying to come up with a summary statement. Mm. All right, coming up with a summary statement, sort of a conclusion that helps sum up the totality of your study. That's good. All right, so uh, quickly, just an uh, overview of authorial intent. Um, So first of all, um, if you were here or if you listened to the audio, you remember that it was explained that authors of the Bible were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. Therefore, of course, it's presumptuous to interpret their work to mean something other than they originally intended because it's their intent and through them the Holy Spirit. So to find out what their original authorial authorial intent was, we have to ask questions such as, who were they writing to? Why were they writing about this? And what lesson were they trying to teach? But understanding the mind of the author is, of course, a great challenge. It requires careful reading of the passage and the wider context. It requires knowing who was being written to and what their circumstances were. The vast majority of the time, the author's intent can be extracted from the text and in the immediate context itself. But often, as we've proven, it sometimes requires study of historical and cultural situations to be more fully understood. <clears throat> Remember, the Bible was not written to you personally, but to those who were being spoken or originally written to. Now, it is also written to you personally, but technically not. You'll get, you get if you get what I'm talking about. I'm not saying the Bible's not for you at all. In fact, I'm saying the very opposite of that. Um, but it is through uh, the medium, the medium of how it was written that God has revealed his truth to us almost indirectly in that sense. Uh, Much of the Old Testament is written by Moses and the prophets to remind the Israelites of what God has done in covenant with them, what he demands from them in covenant, and that the coming Messiah is going to establish a new covenant. The New Testament is written to the newly formed church in various locations around the known world, To explain to them how the new covenant established through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ should be lived out in the church age. But each book is written by a particular author to a particular group of people at a particular time in history to address a particular problem. It is through this authorship that we should understand the overall truths. Of course, ultimately, though, we must remember that the author of the Bible is God himself. He used human mouthpieces to write his words down. Our primary aim is to discover what his intended meaning is. Sometimes even those men who God chose were not aware of the depth and transcendence of his revelation to mankind through them. Uh, my example of this is Daniel twelve 8, 9, which says, Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the end of time. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So we see in since sense there, even Daniel, as he was recording these things and having them revealed to him, he didn't fully understand the implications of what he was writing and saying. Um, But that's why it's important to understand that that dual authorship of human and divine authorship because God knows his overall message and his overall plan. So first we must find out what the original author intended and was inspired to write. This will then help us understand God's ultimate meaning and get to the eternal principles it describes. It is these eternal principles that are supposed to be applied to our lives. Any questions about that? It's kind of a complex way of thinking about it. But I want to make sure I hold that in balance well for you. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> So how do we find authorial intent? Um, it's quite conceptual, so we'll take a look at a couple of examples with actual passages to, to maybe uh, illustrate that. Um, sometimes the author's intent is easy to spot, but because sometimes a passage has an explicit and clear purpose. If you to turn to John 20, 30 to 31, it's toward the end of John's gospel, And it says, Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so that's pretty clear, right? From that passage, it says, John wrote this book so that we may believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. right, so, okay, we've got it. Clearly stated his purpose. Of course, do note that that is toward the end of the book. So in the previous lesson, we talked about how if you're studying something from one book, you should read the whole book first before you carry on, because then you get that that bigger sense. You might find a purpose statement like that in the book. So um, just a quick note there. But when you are studying the book of John, you'll need to keep that ultimate purpose in mind. Um, It's one reason why Jesus is so explicit about who Jesus is. Um, Remember about those how we know that Gospels are ancient bios uh, that draw out highlights in that particular person's life. In this case, Jesus the Messiah. Um, So we can see that the whole way we go, as we go through John... uh, he is bringing out those highlights of proving so that he can prove to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in him, you have life in his name. Okay, so that when you're interpreting every other passage in that book, that's the, th- that's the true north that he's pointing you to in, in the book. <clears throat> but that's not always the case. Sometimes there is a more implicit or ambiguous purpose, or it, it's... It's layered underneath. Um, So in those cases, we should examine the text for for more clues. Try and understand why it was written and what the main themes are. So here are four questions that uh, can help you get to the purpose. First question is, who is writing to whom? Who is writing to whom? The second one is, what is the situation of the author and reader? What is the situation of the author and the reader? Question three is, are there any problems or issues that need to be addressed or are being addressed? Are there any problems or issues that are being addressed? And then finally, are there any repeated themes or a single idea that hold the book together or the passage together? Are there any repeated themes or a single idea that hold the book or passage together? As an example, this we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9. This will be where we pull an example and walk through these questions together. All right, so if you follow along with me, It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that a care was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said to you, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come and find me with me and find you unprepared. We, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, right, 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 that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. He's leading the audience here quite a bit, right? But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, He has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While, through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So from that passage, we'll ask the questions that we talked about above and try, try and look at that context to determine Paul's original intent for this passage. Um, so the first question, of course, is who is writing to whom? And is a pretty simple answer here. It's Paul who's writing to the Corinthians, right? But this is the second recorded letter to the church at Corinth, um, it's probably the third letter in total. We have a first letter, then we have an interim letter, then we have a responsive letter here in Second Corinthians. We don't have the one in the middle. Um, but now we're kind of having read First and Second Corinthians and gaining a sense from the response of the, uh, the other letter. We're kind of used to hearing from Paul in correction or exaltation of the Corinthians for their behavior and, and how they're living out this new idea of Christianity and community in the church. And so we kind of have that understanding there's this constant correction from Paul. Uh, And in this case, he's more positive. It's more of an exhortation than a correction. The first book is more of a correction. So Paul is writing to Corinth again. So what is the situation of the author and the readers? The second question. He says... He would like them to be ready with a gift to prove his reports to the Macedonians so they might be proved true about their generosity. Um, what you might know about Corinth and the Corinthians is they live in a rel- relatively wealthy city. Uh, many of them could afford to give more to the poorer churches in the area. Uh, Corinth was like uh, a very strategic city, it was placed on an isthmus between two continents and a lot of trade came through there, so it was a more wealthy area. Um, we can know that from, there's a couple of verses in chapter 8, which tells us that they're more wealthy. Um, but we also knew there was a, a sharp division between rich and poor in that city as well, and also in the church itself. They, and they had trouble sharing. They had to be corrected in 1 Corinthians 11 and 16 about the lack of generosity. So Paul's kind of following up here and saying, Okay, remember that lesson on sharing generosity? Yeah, let's actually do that now, shall we? Um, because if we don't, you know, our word and what we said we would do would be let down. So um, that's the situation. If, and you can, you, you can gather that from internal context and a little bit of cultural co- and historical context as well. <clears throat> Um, So that's the problem that needs to be addressed. Uh, To be generous, they need to be generous with what they have because of what has been given to them. They need to give to other poorer churches so that the early church could be spiritually and physically nourished and maintained. Um, Their reward would be God's grace and provision. Also the delight of seeing God work through them. And having the thought that others would give thanks to God because of their generosity. Their motivation here is they should be doing it out of gratitude to God for the exceeding grace of God in you. And to see God receive the glory for his provision to all the churches. So this, uh, knowing all that, kind of helps us understand Paul's overall intent for the Corinthians. And it is a healthy understanding of how their giving blesses the church as a whole. And so it kind of answers that question about a single idea holding the passage together. Uh, And we also can tell from both chapters 8 and 9 that cheerful giving is the main theme of the chapters. And so this big lesson about how they should approach giving and wealth and generosity. And of course, once you understand that, that gives you your immediate application at that point is similar, right? Right? And we can definitely relate living in the richest country on earth at the richest time in human history. This is definitely applicable to us and how we deal with our finances. Having said that, I'm now going to do a contrast about what is not being addressed in this passage. If you don't have that context, if you don't ask those questions, and we've actually seen this, that many interpreters have singled out just verse 6, I'm going to read that again to remind you. It says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Probably heard that one or two uh, as well. So without authorial intent, it has been used as a way to get money out of the church. It has been used um, to make giving lots of money to a particular ministry or a person. Like, if you give me this amount of money, God's going to bless you, with all this stuff back. Um, you know, the motivation there is completely changed. The motivation there is not about the blessing which God has already given to us through the grace of God, but it's about getting a blessing back, selfishly motivated instead of, um, out, of a, out of a motivation of graciousness. Um, in fact, it reverses the application. It, become, it, it creates greediness in us instead of generosity. Um, so really, that, that sort of, amongst other things, poor interpretation um, there came out of not paying enough attention to Paul's original intent, authorial intent. <clears throat> So let's move on. Let's look at a couple more interpretive tools that help us understand authorial intent. There are structure and parallelism. Uh, They help kind of break up larger sections and us get a better understanding out of it. So in structure, we're going to also ask two more questions. First one is, has the author divided his material into sections? Has the author divided his material into sections? And the second question is, how do these sections fit together? How do the sections fit together? So the first question is key. It's a, not all portions of Scripture have an overarching structure of them. But when the book appears to be put together in a particular pattern or order, it's important for us to try and understand why that structure is there. Um, and, and then perhaps more clearly, we can try and find what the author is trying to do with each point. He's trying to build a case on a case on a case into a big, a big final conclusion. <clears throat> so how do we do that? So one of the ways to do that is look for repeated words or repeated themes. That's a simple one. We'll look a little bit more on that later. Uh, in narratives, remember we talked about those stories. Sometimes we can see scene changes in narratives. Um, you know, did, did the action just switch from one perspective to another um, uh, why did the author choose to move me from looking at it from this perspective to another uh, in this situation uh, think about Romans 7 uh, often switches perspectives verse by verse as you go through it <clears throat> what about dialogues think about dialogues it, sometimes this is confusing the way it's written uh, the text can be div- divided up by based on who is speaking. For Job, for example, you've got um, Job will speak and then God will speak and then maybe one of his friends will speak. And it doesn't always necessarily point that out, but you have to be aware of it because it matters a lot about who's speaking. Because some people are speaking in worldly wisdom and then obviously God is speaking with divine wisdom and you've got to take that those words with that understanding, because um, yeah, what Job's friends say is not always great advice, but what God says is the truth. Um, some places the structure uh, that's used is the structure of legal legal argument. Um, or sometimes a classic rhetorical argument. And this is very specifically broken out. So Malachi is a good example of a legal argument. If you read the case that's being presented against uh, the audience there, if you go back and read it again with that mindset, you're like, oh, okay, makes more sense. And also a big example is uh, the Paul's letters to the Romans. It's a rhetorical argument. The whole thing is a big rhetorical argument. In Romans 1 and 2, Paul establishes that everyone is under God's wrath because of their sin. He, he goes and talks about the Gentiles, some in chapter 1. He talks about how it applies to the Jews in chapter 2. Um, before, and he does that before he begins his argument about the free gift of salvation in Christ for those who believe in chapter 3. And then it's, it continues and it builds on those establishments as it goes through. It's a patterned progression of thought through Romans. And it's probably, most likely, the structure of a progressive rhetorical argument. So, uh, again, I'll mention that book um, here. In your outline, it says, um, New Testament Rhetoric, an Introduction Guide to the Art of Persuasion in and of the New Testament by Ben Witherington. That's a good one. Help you with Rhetoric. So look for those structures. And then also another tool is parallels. Um, Of course, we looked at that a little bit when we talked about the genre of poetry. Um, There is different types of parallelism. Uh, It makes for nice poetry, but it also helps us grasp the meaning of the passage in a different way. It gives you two chances to look at the same information. Maybe you didn't understand the first phrase or you only partially understood it, but then when you get that second phrase, it can bring another layer of understanding. So, for example, Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. If um, so you read the first sentence, maybe you wonder why we should seek the Lord. And then in the second line, it makes it clearer. It says, Call on him while he is near. So if you parallel them both, it's like, Seek the Lord. Uh, is parallel with call on him. So, how do we typically seek and call on the Lord? Well, it's through prayer, right? So, he's talking about prayer, but it, it's, it has sort of this time box to it as well. While he is near, while he may be found, and from that we can see um, we can call on God now in 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 prayer, can't we? He's available for us to call on in prayer. But after the judgment day, this is no longer an option. So it has that urgency, which is borne out by that parallel. Another extended use of parallelism is in Matthew 5, 3 to 12, in the Beatitudes. In this case, it's not just a simple two-line parallel. It's actually an extended parallelism of eight parallels. Um, And it describes... Eight character, characteristics of a single group of people. They are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is what they should look like. They should look like this, and this, and this, and this. And this. Eight times. So now we have a uh, more expanded understanding of who they are through this parallelism. So we look for that as well. Now I could probably go on to many other sort of structural helps. Um, but we're going to move on because that's a, a vast subject. We're going to go on to linking words. Linking words are important to identify authorial intent. <clears throat> but we've used linking words for a long time. It's part of the English language. It's not a new concept. Do you remember when you were young and your mum said to you, don't confuse bovril with the marmite, because it will make your gravy taste funny. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, she said, "Don't confuse the bovril with the marmite, because it will make your gravy taste funny." Yeah, yeah. I know. All the time, all the time. So, but so, thank you. In this thankfully, in this situation, your mum made it super clear. Um, it becomes clear why the confusion should be avoided by using the linking word, because. It links those two clauses together and tells us that funny-tasting gravy is the reason for avoiding the confusion. All right? So don't confuse those two things. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. But there are, there are other linking words. That was just one example. Um, How about linking words that give examples using the word like? James 1.23 says we could be like a man who looks in a mirror and then goes away and forgets his own face, right? As an example, we could be like that man. There's linking words that add information like furthermore. Do a word study. Furthermore, such and such. Um, There's summarizing uh, linking words like to fulfill what was said by the prophet." Um, there's also sequencing words, such as firstly, secondly, and then finally. Finally, brothers, whatsoever things are, blah, blah, blah. They're also linking words that give reason. Because, or for, for unto us a child is born. If, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's also linking words that give a result or a purpose. So that, so that they may see your good works and give glory. There's also contrasting linking words like, however, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. There's also distinguishing words that really, um, that really punch something out at you, like, but God. Whoa. Uh, There's also uh, words that indicate a particular consequence of a preceding statement, like, therefore, therefore. Consequently, for this reason, therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. <clears throat> There's also phrases that make a statement conditional. And it's if again, but in a different way. So if you follow my commands, think of Deuteronomy and the, new, and the Mosaic Covenant, all these good things happen. If you disobey, all these bad things happen. That's a conditional statement there. Clued in by that linking word. And then finally, there's the linking words that tell the purpose behind something or introduce the result of something. Um, Again, sort of like a so that type phraseology, uh, like Ephesians 3, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. This thing, so that. All right, so really pay attention to those linking words. Um, As an activity, I think this is in your outline. Yeah, there's a homework for you. Uh, have a look at the linking words in Titus 2, 1 to 15. Underline them all, and then hopefully that will, if you're thinking specifically about those words, it could bring out the authorial intent a lot better for you. Uh, We don't have time to do that now, but take that home. Do that as an exercise. Another tool is repetition. Repetition, obviously when when, uh, an author is repeating something, it's really trying to drive a point. Um, A a famous self-help author once observed, any idea, plan, or purpose may be placed in the mind through repetition of thought. So, that's the truth, but unfortunately, you know, used by numerous spiritual gurus and worldly leaders, uh, you know, use this repetition to brainwash people. Brainwashers. But it's actually a correct observation, something that has already been known by uh, the Bible's divine and human authors, and it's throughout Scripture. And the repetition, repetition of words, phrases, and ideas within Scripture um, is one method of the author of drawing the attention of the reader so as to highlight important or even central points of a text. Um, it doesn't, it's not necessarily magically unlocks the passage, but it certainly will clue you in. Um, so let's give an example of how something can clue you in. Um, if we go to John 6, 47 to 59, I want you to look at how often the words living or life or bread uh is used in this passage. Just scan through there, John 6, 47 to 58. I don't think we have time to read it all, but I just want you, as you kind of look over it, scan, read it, as it were. John 6, 47, 58. You'll see how many times the word life, bread, uh, manna, bread, uh, Eat and not die. Living bread. Eats of this bread. Live. Life. Um, eat. Life. Feeds. Life. Uh, true food. Feeds. Living father. Live. Live. Bread. 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 Live. You get the point, okay? There's obviously something in there that the author really wants you to understand about life and bread. So, and the conclusion, of course, is that Jesus is the living bread, okay? And we, if we eat of him, of the life-giving bread, we will gain eternal life. So that's clearly a central point. So, please feel free to use all of those tools. Structure, parallels, linking words, repetition, <clears throat> so there's just some uh, very practical how-tos on discovering authorial intent. Um, another way to look at authorial intent is from the audience perspective as well. What does the audience need to hear? Um, so there's some questions you can ask around this too, to place you in the mind of the original recipients. Um, what did they learn from it originally? Can you put yourself in their shoes and think about where they were at that time and how it imp- impacted them? Think about the Gospel of Matthew, how it landed with the curious Jews of the first century when they were expecting a conquering king. Like, How would that Gospel of Matthew have reoriented that thinking? And that was the point, wasn't it? What about the kings of Israel as they received those prophecies from the major prophets that came alongside them and said, hey, repent. Otherwise, this thing will happen. Hmm. How how the different contingencies within an early church heard the messages from an epistle that was directed to their specific issues, a lot of cultural issues that they're working through. Hey, Jewish group, this. Hey, Gentile group, this. Uh, You know, how... They would have heard that in different ways. And the Paul and other New Testament authors try and weave their way between those differences. So, Jewish audiences typically need to hear references to Old Testament events, to cultural tradition, traditions, or relevant prophecies in order for the point to hit home. Gentiles often need to have their culture exposed and turned on its head for. Uh, a gospel or for a letter to make sense. Um, And and they do that on purpose. Authors are like, I know what you're thinking, so I'm going to write this. So it smacks you upside the head and you start thinking about it differently. So be aware of that. So remember, there was an original audience and that was who the author was trying to impact with truth. We must seek to hear the words of Scripture in their context before we can recontextualize it to our modern context. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you a few questions here um, that may open the, this, past, this this concept to you a little bit more. It goes so deep as to be thinking about things like geographic references, topo- topographical references. Um, uh, thematic references. So, okay, for first, geographical uh, references and locations. Uh, Can you tell me if there is a mention of the city of Babylon in a passage, what would that have brought to mind for a Jewish audience? What, what, What might they think of? Think of? Captivity at exile. Yeah, it would bring in that whole theme for them. You just mention one city, a geographical location, and it brings in this whole flood of other concepts. So all the author needs to do is say Babylon, and all the Jewish original audience will be like, "Oh, that thing." What about topographical mentions? How about? Um, when Jesus came down from the mountain after being up there a long while to pray in the New Testament, if he did that, what would that maybe have brought to also a a Jewish mind? Like he's coming down from a mountain to pray. Moses. So it would occlude them into this whole oh he's he's coming in the type of Moses, you know, and and you go back to Jude probably talks about a prophet like me. Like, oh, literally, like me. He's doing the same, exact same things. Oh, woo -woo. How about this? What about when Paul mentions leaven in the church of Corinthians? What feast do you think the Jewish contingent of the Corinthian church will be thinking about when leaven is mentioned? Almost. It's It's in relation to the Passover. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, a lot of people, when they read Corinthians and in instructions for the Lord's Supper, don't know about how frequently in those passages the Feast of Unleavened Bread is referenced. And it's super important to interpret those passages. So if you, that if that piques your interest, then I recommend reading it further. So again, that book I was talking about uh, Custom and Manners of the Bible can help with that study. Bible dictionaries, of course, commentaries can help with that kind of study. So I recommend you get those out when you are doing deep study. Okay, so now, as promised in your outline, we'll go on to a brief survey of biblical theology. Um, Who's heard the term biblical theology before? Most people, good, good, good. Good. <clears throat> so, um, you're like, well, why is biblical theology in with the subject of when authorial intent? Well, because, as we've said before, God is the author of Scripture. And biblical theology really exposes to us what his ultimate intent is for Scripture overall. What is the God's authorial intent? Well, biblical theology tells us that. And it keeps us in line interpretively and in our applications with what God wants as a whole. No passage anywhere in Scripture should be interpreted to mean something outside of the overall meaning, the meta-narrative, as it were. I know that's a big, long word, but it just means the big story, the big picture of Scripture. Um, So... If you're pretty familiar with biblical theology, I'm not going to define it too much for you other than what I just said. It's the big picture of God's plan for all of humankind and how he reveals that in Scripture to us. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. I'm skipping a bit my own for, for time. <clears throat> So the story that runs through the Bible tells us of the restoration of God's communion with mankind through Jesus Christ. And this is a theme that can be seen to develop from the very beginning of Genesis 1, the special creation of man, all the way through to perfect fellowship with God, with his people, as described in Revelation 22. From beginning to end, that is the theme. Restoration of God's communion with mankind through Jesus Christ. It's also what links both the Old and New Testaments together. Um, And it gives the church a greater understanding of God's redemptive plan for mankind and his desire to restore communion with them. So why is biblical important for you, the studier? The insights of interpreting Scripture in light of biblical theology are threefold. First, it helps us to clearly see that God is in control of his own revelation. The amazing continuity of one single message testifies to divine inspiration. Second, it becomes evident that God has a plan for mankind, and that is the salvation of their souls. God's plan of salvation is related to and referred back to throughout the history that the Bible records. Third, a constant mental reference to the meta-narrative, to the big picture, during the process of interpretation gives the interpreter a wider picture that helps his conclusions remain within the scope of the purpose of Scripture as a whole. Uh, Those who are not aware of biblical theology can tend to proof text. Um, You may have heard that phrase before, and it's using... Verses out of their context and outside of the overarching context, the overall message that runs through Scripture. Who's heard this verse from 2 Corinthians 6, 2, taken out of context? Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Anyone heard that used out of context? Somehow, it's, it's interpreted to, to, to pronounce floodgates of blessing on God's people. They can live their best life now. All right, now is the favorable time. But actually, God's favor is our reconciliation to God through Christ. And of course, that more easily fits into that whole story of salvation history. And you can see it's pretty easy. The next verse states that Christian life is not always going to be easy. Um, and which should immediately contradict the poor interpretation application which we just mentioned. Um, and and so often this proof texting uh, out of the the main meta narrative is what supports false teaching. Um, you know, two Peter three sixteen says that some untaught and unstable men will twist the scriptures and many false doctrines have been given false credibility because Scripture has been used out of the greater context. So finally, as we go into our last little bit here, we're going to look at a little more in-depth for for biblical theology, and we're going to look at some of the ways it can be used. Um, So you can use it. We're going to look at three ways... There's the idea of the central theme of biblical theology, the idea of a conceptual theme within Scripture, and then the idea of threads, smaller threads that run from, through the length of Scripture. The central theme um, asks the question whether there is indeed a central theme that can be found in which biblical theology can be rooted uh, and that ties all of the narrative together and something that all interpretations can be linked to. Um, so uh, there's even discussions about whether this is a thing or not. And so people go out and they try and, like, okay, so what could be the central theme of biblical theology? What, what's the key to unlocking all of our interpretations? And it can be useful to think about this. Um, for example, most popular of these themes is salvation or redemption. Uh, it seems to be the simplest topic, especially for even angelically-minded Christians. Uh, this theme would say that the salvation through work of Jesus Christ is the subject around which the Bible is constructed and to which all conclusions should point. Um, I would put forward another one. How about communion with God? Is that a good one? Um, if you look at uh, the Bible, from God's perspective, would communion with God be a better central theme than salvation or redemption? It's a slight, it's only a slight tweaking of it, but um, communion looks at um, the subject of Scripture from God's eye. What, you know, what is His purpose in this? Uh, Jesus did die on the cross to pay from our, for our sins, so that we could be forgiven and get to heaven. But for what ultimate purpose? It was so that through Him. We could mend the relation. He could mend the the relationship with God, and come back into right communion with His special creation. Scholars might call this the consummative purpose of redemption, and this is where the Bible begins and ends. God created man in His image and in His environment in order to walk, talk, and relate with Him in the garden. Uh, The pinnacle of creation, Adam, was set apart in order for there to be a relationship between him and the creator. And of course, this is why the fall is so devastating. It broke the perfect communion of God and man. The rest of scripture outlines the plan by which men can get back into right relationship with God. The plan of salvation and redemption is that way. So God reaches out to mankind through a series of progressive covenants that show him the way back through faith in God. And submission to his son's work on the cross. Um, So any human can receive sonship this way. But it doesn't end there. Salvation is the key to entering where? Heaven, ultimately. And how will it be in heaven? Once, uh, again, God's creation uh, will be in perfect communion with him. And this time it will be for eternity. Perfect communion with God is a theme of the Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. But that's just an idea. Could it be that? So sometimes if you have the time, it's try and come up with a central theme. There's, there's many out there. You can, you know, search it uh, about other folks who've come up with this idea of a central theme. Um, how about this one? You could explore the idea of the glory of God. Is everything to the glory of God? Will your interpretation ultimately point to giving God the glory? That's a good central theme of biblical theology as well. Anyway, just an idea. There's also the idea of the conceptual theme. These are like ideas or principles that run through scripture. Uh, They can range from the existence of a faithful remnant. This always seems to pop up. Something devastating happened. There's always like... A small group somewhere that remains faithful, you know the the faithful prophets, or you know when uh, Ezekiel does his prophecy, there's always a like a little bit left, you know. It's mentioned. What about covenant relationships? That's conceptual theme, and it helps us interpret lots of things like marriage or um, uh, church covenants. Uh, you know all these things that relate back to covenant relationships. Um, How about this idea? And this is something you can go back and look up. Um, When you go home, how about you look up what the implications of the principle of persecution of the faithful lends to your understanding and application of Scripture? Persecution of the faithful is a concept that runs throughout the Bible, from Abel all the way to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2. Why is it? What does it mean that he who's faithful receives persecution? I don't know. Just explore that. It's just these conceptual themes themes are are things that are just talked about and mentioned, and, and it's through narratives, even in all the different literary genres They'll be referred to. i um, trying to give you a sense of this. i so It's going to do a more lengthy uh, illustration about how faithfulness and fidelity relates to our understanding of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And how that language is used. Jeremiah has it all the way through there. Think about uh, Malachi. Uh, God hates divorce. And then we see that referred to in Matthew and in Corinthians about... Um, how faithfulness and fidelity should really ground all of our interpretations of passages about those subjects as well. We should represent our God in constancy and faithfulness and fidelity. All right, and so finally, how about narrative threads? Now, these are a little smaller, and they may be sort of word-based uh, themes that run through Scripture. Smaller threads and themes um, are there all the way, all the way through Scripture, and they tie into the overall meta narrative and further illustrate and round out our knowledge of God and His Word. Some of these, some examples of these threads, are light, or oil, or shepherds, or sheep they are constant reference points um, in, in passages all the way through Scripture that always are referring to either the same thing or a similar theme. And, and so as you get to a passage that has one of these themes, you can then refer to what Scripture has said about that theme throughout the pages of Scripture. It's not just a new concept. Oh, you know, uh, elders should be good shepherds of the flock. Oh, what could he mean by shepherds here? You know, there's clearly... Uh, an illustration of of what shepherds are used for in in illustrating God's meaning all along. Um, So they refer to actual items, but contain a greater spiritual meaning. God uses familiar items to illustrate something about himself or his word. Let's look at an example. Um, What about this one simple objects that is repeated in scripture at least 52 times. Uh, that's from the New International Version. Why was I looking at the NIV? Weird. Um, and then 32 times in the New King James Version. I don't have numbers for every, any other uh, translation, but you can look that up. Uh, the, the word or the reference is yeast or leaven. And we talked about the feast on leavened bread. Um, so why, God, why did God use this so often? What does it refer to? What's he trying to illustrate by using this simple thing, it's trying to open up truth through, through simple objects? So yeast is a microscopic fungus consisting of a single, o- single oval cells that reproduce by budding and are capable of converting sugar into alcohol and carbon dioxide. It's used as a raising agent in bread dough. Just a small amount of yeast is needed to turn a whole lump of dough into a nice plump loaf of bread. So that's its practical purpose. But in Scripture, it's used to illustrate something else. Three things sin, uh, false teaching, and the kingdom of heaven. That's its theological purpose, or its biblical theological purpose. We have to presume that the creator of yeast, God, create it created it with the specific qualities primarily to communicate to mankind these spiritual truths. Like yeast didn't just, oh yeah, we'll create yeast, whatever. People make bread with it. No, you can imagine God, what he did was say, hey, if I create something called yeast that has these properties, it's going to enable me to illustrate to mankind these spiritual and theological truths in my word. That's the way everything is created. It's They're not just inanimate, useless objects. They're illustrative objects. You know, trees. Why is there a tree? We are like a tree planted by streams living water. They're not just trees. God created those trees. So, um, you know, think about that more deeply. Why is is this certain thing mentioned, and how is it mentioned all through the pages of Scripture? Um, It's easy to see why yeast was picked to demonstrate these three things because they're all things that start off small and grow into something much larger. Um, So, think about this verse here. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. It says, a little leaven leavens the whole batch. Sin in one member of the body, if left unchecked, can expand until it corrupts the entire church. This is the same as in the individual question. If we leave sin unchecked, it can, spoil, um, it can spoil our growth as a Christian. If sin is allowed a place in our heart, a whole life of that person could be defiled by it. False teaching is called the way. Unchallenged heresy can lead to apostasy. That's why it's so important to know the scriptures well, so false teaching can be easily identified and countered. On the positive side, the kingdom of heaven is also like yeast. It started with just 12 disciples. By the day of Pentecost, it grown to 3,000. And look, since then, we have billions of people that have come to saving knowledge of the work of Jesus Christ. So biblical theologies based on these small threads can be easily understood because of their relevancy to our everyday life. Of course, the challenge is living that out, but of course, the rewards are great. So uh, take some time to explore those themes such as light, rest, food, oil, and see why God created those things to... um, expand our understanding of what he's trying to say to us theologically and spiritually from Scripture. So there you go. Uh, We looked at authorial intent today. We looked at biblical uh, theology. Uh, The couple of books I've recommended in your outline regarding biblical theology is Christ-Centered Biblical Theology, Hermeneutical Foundations and Principles by Graham Goldworthy. And according to plan... The Unfolding Revelation of God in the Bible by Graeme Goldsworthy also. Jolly good books. He also does another one called Preaching the Whole Bible as Scripture, which is really good for those who are interested in preaching. All right, I'm sorry that uh, we've had to condense a lot in something small and, and, and uh, cut some of it out, but we've got one minute for questions. <laughs> <coughs> Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah. Mm-hmm. Resources. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think the answer we talked about this a little bit in an earlier lesson um, I, I think the answer can be uh, can be answered by remembering that we said how scripture is an incredibly um, well obviously divine but uh, incredible piece of literature in that scripture is trying. God is using scripture, he's revealing in scripture his overall intent to point us to who he is and who Christ is. And there are many extra-biblical sources, there's many ways in which stories are presented in scripture that the author has kind of cherry-picked, in a sense, in order to continue to make that overall point. Whether they were cognizant or not that... um, what they were doing at the time was going to be part of the divine revelation. I'm not sure. So like when Paul is quoting pagan poets. Or there's also other things that are like in Corinthians that he he repeats uh, Corinth, uh, Corinthian cultural like um, pop phrases. And he just shouts them out. And he's making an illustration to talk about... Um, uh, what he's trying to achieve in Corinthians, in the book of Corinthians, the letter, where I'm, I'm sure he's, he's not saying, um, I'm sure he's not thinking, oh, this is going to be part of the Bible one day. I wonder if it's going to cause trouble if I use an, an extra biblical or pagan source. He's saying, how do I get this gospel principle across to my author? Oh, here's something that they'll easily reference. I'm going to say that. And then someone recording that, put that down, and then it became part of the canon of Scripture. And God, and God, in his ultimate purpose and his sovereignty, said, I'm going to use this because this is a person I've used uh, and inspired to write in order to take this material and make my overall point. And so thinking about that, that's why biblical theology is so helpful. It's like, is this being used in a way that points us ultimately to salvation history? Um... So I think you can think of it that way. It's, it's not necessarily so, so much causing a problem because of where it came from, but now that it's part of divine scripture, it is being used and inspired to, to prove the overall point that Jesus is Messiah. So I don't know if I completely answered your question, but I hope I at least answered it in, in some way. <laughs> All right, well, I think it's time for us to Go. So thank you for being an attentive audience. I'm going to pray real quick. <clears throat> Dear Lord Jesus, I do thank you again for your word. I thank you that it all makes sense. Thank you that it points us to you and to the work of your son. Uh, I, I pray that as we become diligent studiers of the word, that uh, we seek and desperately have an urgency and desire to seek deeply of your word to understand more about you. Um, So we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we're not swimming in confusion, but we have indeed a critical, uh, truthful standard to explore and understand. In Jesus' name, amen.